Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm well. Thanks. <laughs> and you? Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is February 11th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. <laughs> On the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Doing all right. So, like, basically immediately after we uh, stopped talking about Mookie Betts last week, M- Mookie Betts was, in fact, traded to that the was Dodgers. amazing timing. Yeah. I had a feeling that that's how it was going to go down. David Price and his huge contract is also on the way to L.A. Boston will get, you know, a couple of guys. It doesn't seem like Boston got enough for giving up the second best player of his generation, right? I mean, a little bit. Uh, I think uh, you have to keep in mind, A, just how desperate they were to kind of uh, save money or be cheap, I guess, if you want to spin it in the anti uh, Red Sox direction. I think also they basically didn't have that much leverage. I mean, Mookie was going to probably leave or high high chance he would leave. And um, all they would really get was a was a draft pick if he if he walked away. Would it have made more sense for them to wait till the trade deadline? It just seems like if, they, if this is all they were going to get, what was the point? The money just doesn't does it really matter that much? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I mean, I think that they probably should have waited and maybe there would have been um, a better deal on the table yeah. later. The, Alex for Verdugo- is like good though you know he's he's pretty good he's okay we got a couple guys he's pretty good the several data points uh of red sox fans that i know are very upset about about the trade and have kind of lost faith in uh in in ownership to do the right thing here i don't know how i came to be the one that was defending this trade it's amazing i know (laughs) i'm not i mean like i don't think it's great just as a little time machine here, weren't they kind of this? If memory serves, we should ask our Red Sox sources. Weren't they kind of like this when Nomar was traded? Like real Henny Penny, the sky is falling. We lost our best player, and then a couple years later, turned out Nomar was. I'm not saying this could happen to Mookie. I mean, I think you're right in the sense that both were like beloved. Um, players in the franchise and they were kind of MVP level players not that um, long ago. But I mean, like, Nomar had had injuries and was sort of already showing signs that he wasn't the same player, whereas, like, Mookie hasn't really had any of that. He's still The only prime part level. that's the same is that is how beloved they were by that fan base. Yeah. Well, now I'm curious as to what this does for, like, you know, we, we I think we ran a story. Uh, Travis Sawchick, our baseball writer, wrote that um, the Dodgers were like they already were overwhelming favorites. Now they're just like extra overwhelming in the in the National League, at least. Yeah, um, they were already projected for 110 wins or 112 wins or something absurd like that's that. That's insane. And and now they added the one of the best players Arguably, in baseball. Yeah, like the second best player in baseball. Uh, but yeah. I will say after this is what's really funny is after um, accounting for the trade. Uh, Fangraphs still, so they have the Dodgers as the second best team with the second most projected war. And number one, our friends 
The Astros, Sarah's favorite team. <laughs> My favorite team. What, what will we make of the Astros next year? I, you know, this is here's what's. Fun. Are they still the best team in baseball? This is what's crazy to me right now. We have this like super team situation going on in MLB, except they keep imploding. I mean, the Red Sox were so good in 2018, all time. Yeah, and then they really seem to want to dismantle that quickly, which is not what I was expecting to happen. And then the Astros. Implosion came in a completely different way, but but who knows what we're going to get out of that team? This is how bad it is for the Red Sox. They are projected to have the same number of wars as the Mets. Oof, rough. I think we all know they'll still be better than the Mets. Did they actually win more games than the Mets last year? I feel like the Mets may have won more games, or it was close. It was close. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Spring training starts soon, guys. Only like 10, 10 12 days, something like that. Get very, excited! Very exciting. On today's show, we're looking back at Kobe Bryant's career and how the media and fans have responded in the wake of his death. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Hey, listeners, the following conversation contains discussions of sexual violence. A few weeks ago, we spoke briefly on the show about the shocking news that Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, had died in a helicopter accident that also killed seven other people. At the time, we wanted to give both ourselves and listeners an opportunity to process what had happened and to come back to the conversation about Kobe Bryant's legacy at a time when we can all have a bit more perspective. We spoke then about how Kobe's sudden passing had immediate repercussions in the basketball world, but the outcry of support and sadness has extended far past the sport itself. The Grammys, which took place on the day that Kobe died, paid tribute to him through song. Tennis's Novak Djokovic and soccer's Neymar each paid tribute to him. And the Super Bowl held a moment of silence. Former President Obama and President Trump expressed their condolences for the Bryant family on Twitter. The media response to Bryant's death has also been constant and widespread, with outlets that don't usually venture into sports offering their takes on his legacy. Let's ground ourselves first with what Kobe did on the court. He's certainly one of the most famous players of all time. But, Neil, do his stats live up to that? Well, uh, in in a certain way they do. So if we're talking about players that were near the top or at the top of the MVP rankings each year, you know, they have the stat called uh, MVP shares at Basketball Reference. Uh, and Kobe is 10th all time in that. He ranks in the top 10. He's also one of 28 players that have a 100% Hall of Fame probability, according to Basketball Reference. One thing I can't really tell if the list at Basketball Reference is um, sort of breaks ties under the hood. Uh, but he's fourth on their list, uh, ahead of LeBron and behind Bill Russell, Michael Jordan, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's one of those, you know, elite players in history. He is one of 26 players ever to win five championships in his career. If we're talking about advanced metrics, he's 19th all-time in win shares. He's 17th all-time in value over replacement player, uh, which I think most people, uh, certainly non-stats-based fans, would probably find to be underrating him. Uh, when we looked at sort of our Raptor metrics since 1976, so the merger, and looked at this combination of peak and career value, he came in eighth, which I think is a little bit more reasonable. Uh, he was eighth in Bill Simmons' Hall of Fame pyramid when he released the Book of Basketball. So I think that's generally where you know the stats might have him be like a top 
10 to 20 player and um, some of the more either things based on MVP voting or whatever. Uh, and, and also Raptor, our metric, would have him be top 10. Now, I don't know that there would be this level of emotional outpouring if somebody like, you know, Carl Malone uh, died or David Robinson uh, or someone like that, God forbid. Uh, and so I do think that there's something else that is definitely not being captured in the numbers that explains the outpouring of emotion above and beyond his his performance as a player. Because and and this took me by surprise, I think, when um, in the wake of uh, the news that Kobe had died, was just how much universal outpouring of grief there was in a way that we would not see for a player that maybe had similar numbers, but less of a stature uh, in terms of the, the culture at large. How much of that do you think is because of the sudden and 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 accidental nature of his death? Does that change a narrative about someone's, you know, just basketball impact and kind of make it, uh, you know, because he died so young and because he died in such a tragic way, does that sort of elevate his stature more than what the pure numbers would say? I, I think totally. I mean, this was the, you know, in my lifetime, this is probably only on par with Princess Diana in terms of like the most shocking out of nowhere deaths from a celebrity. I mean, there's been other celebrity deaths. You know, Michael Jackson was a huge one. But how could you possibly see this coming? It's a terrible accident and it's a freak thing. And it, I think when it's a transportation, especially an aviation accident, it, it sort of hits the public even harder because it's just scarier and it just, you know, reeks of unpredictability. And, and also compound that with his daughter being on the helicopter makes it that much harder to process and that much sadder. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it was definitely one that no one's forgetting anytime soon, regardless of how much you like basketball or how much you like Kobe. One of the things that struck me was the response that we've seen from sports media. And I wonder about Kobe's image within the the media world. Can we kind of parse out how much Kobe was responsible for his image in the media versus how much the media just just wanted a the you know the next Michael Jordan the next goat of the game. Well, I think he definitely came along at exactly the right moment when um, Jordan's career was winding down and the NBA had been sort of fretting for for years about what they would do uh, when when Jordan was gone and there was that void in star power. And Kobe really like from the very beginning, uh, I think back to that All Star game where you know he and Jordan played against each other, and he invited the the comparison and really kind of seemed to sort of thrive in it uh, in a way that I think says a lot about Kobe's aspirations of what he wanted his his basketball legacy and his career to be like. Because normal people, if you're looking at Jordan, the six championships, never losing in the finals, basically being the widely regarded, if not universally, as the greatest player ever by the time of his retirement, especially in the way that he went out hitting that last shot uh, with the Bulls against Utah. We'll pretend the Wizards stint didn't happen. Um, you'd have to be crazy to even aim for that uh, and, and try to kind of replicate that uh, and, and think that you have any chance to come remotely close. And, and it's, it's really, I think, one of the most staggering things about Kobe is that he aimed for that. And 
he came pretty close. Like at at the end, he had five championships instead of six. He lost two finals instead of zero. Instead of you know making the last shot against Utah, uh, he didn't always uh, have the highest shooting percentage in critical games, but still, you know was able to craft this image of himself as being sort of the, if not Jordan, the next best thing, the the true heir apparent to Jordan, in a way that I think it played off of the fact that the media wanted someone to fill that void. But I think it also, you know, the media had shouted down lesser pretenders to Jordan's throne for years, uh, starting with, I think, Harold Miner, baby Jordan, uh, who was a little-known footnote uh, in the history of the game. So, I mean, the the media had courted people to take on that burden and then chewed them up and spit them out multiple times before Kobe ever even came along. And so I think it's pretty incredible that even though he was very obviously between his play, his playing style, the way he handled interviews and the way he kind of comported himself, uh, that he was trying to kind of, you know, mimic Jordan and be the next generation version of it. And it worked, especially to the extent that today's players viewed him as their Jordan. They're too young to remember the actual Jordan, but they know that Jordan does have a, you know, larger than life uh, shadow over the game itself. And so I think they gravitated toward Kobe specifically because he was the one that took that on, that legacy on, and was basically their sort of living piece of history in the game. I think there's also something to be said for playing your entire career for one team. I mean, we look at him often mock, you know, the way Yankee fans talk about Jeter. You go back a little further, you look at the way people from Baltimore talk about Ripken. Um, and it's just a powerful thing to, to, you know, be at one arena, one fan base for, for your entire career and especially a career with that many highlights. And I was actually at the game. I, I think I mentioned it on the show, uh, the Laker game I went to earlier the year. And it was the game where he was court. They show it on TV all the time. Now where he was courtside with this, with Gianna and just, being there for his reaction in that town, I mean, he's a god. I mean, they, he was worshipped um, by, by everyone in that fan base to a level that I, I don't think we can really – there's not many parallels in, in all the sports, especially the way, you know, guys move around and, and, and you know, have moments, great moments with several different teams and several different fan bases, the way LeBron has. Um, but it's pretty unique now, especially in the current state of the NBA. I don't know how many times we're going to really see that again. So the element of Kobe's life that has been danced around in the coverage of his death was the sexual assault case brought against him almost 17 years ago. In 2003, Kobe Bryant was accused of raping a 19-year-old employee of a hotel he was staying at. The charges were eventually dropped when the accuser declined to testify, which is common in sexual assault cases. The accuser did bring a separate civil suit against Bryant, and they settled that case privately. On the day the criminal charges were dropped, Bryant issued an apology that read, Although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. So I have personally been kind of shocked to see how sparingly those accusations have been brought up in the assessment of Brian's legacy. Not just that it's been so sparsely mentioned, but that there has been so much pushback to those who did bring it up in the wake of his death. 
Felicia Sanmez, a reporter for The Washington Post, was suspended after she tweeted a Daily Beast article that explained the rape case. These are understandably difficult conversations to have, but I am wondering why it feels like people are refusing to even acknowledge that this is part of his past, too. Well, I think there's a couple factors at play here. One is the sensitivity, obviously, with the the proximity to his death. And I think on top of that, as I said earlier, the fact that his daughter was on the helicopter as well complicates that and makes it even more sensitive. Second, I think this is also not true. This has been true with Kobe for a while. I mean, this wasn't, you know, when he retired and, and he had that amazing final game. It, it wasn't something people were talking about. I think we've always had a complicated relationship with him. And I think, frankly, you know, we liked as a society, I think we like to pigeonhole, you know, good guys and bad guys. It's what we're trained to do as children. And I think the fact that this never went to the criminal level, the criminal court level, it was just in the sort of settled in a civil case. Um, it it makes it, it puts it in this gray area that I think people have trouble um, processing. You know, it's not like a, a Bill Cosby or a Harvey Weinstein where it's just like, okay, that's a bad guy. He's pushed him over. Not to compare Kobe to those levels of crimes. I mean, they're all bad, but like he's been prosecuted. He's a bad guy. He's in jail. We can move on. Um, whereas something like this where he's denied it and, and something was settled out of the court and not talked about. I think a lot of people a are given a freedom to ignore it and to believe him and to, you know, um, to cry his accusers and, and, and blame it on them. Whereas if he had gone to actually be prosecuted, I think it would be in a criminal setting. I think it would be a completely different scenario. Well, don't you think there's also, you know, this this goes beyond Kobe, but toward maybe in society at large, whenever someone dies that maybe has done things, you know, bad things in their past, uh, we we tend to, you know, for eulogizing them at a funeral and they're like a family member or something like that, we don't really want to grapple with the 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 bad things in their past and we like to kind of pump them up uh, and, and only talk about the good things in their memory. You know, we understand why family members would do that with a regular person who has passed away. There, There's nothing larger at stake there in terms of what kind of message it sends about how, how we want to talk about sexual violence. Uh, but with Kobe, it was a lot of people that didn't know him, never knew him, that were sort of treating it the same way. And I think one of the big reasons why we don't want to acknowledge it at all in in his past is the fact that we're we're wanting to see this as maybe different than a lot of the people that were outpouring their grief are in the sense that we want to talk about Kobe as a human and we want to talk about you know the good and the bad and just everything about his life uh, as an actual person. I think a lot of people don't want to talk about him as a person. They want to talk about him as an idea, something that really they imprinted themselves onto and made a part of their life. Uh, and, and that was why it hit them so hard is that Kobe represented something to them uh, that was specifically not about him being a real person. It was about him being the image, the whether they were Laker fans, whether they were basketball fans, liked his playing style or whatever. I, th- I think there's a big element of wanting to remember someone as not being an actual person, but being more of an idea of something that they represent. I think, I mean, that makes sense to me. I think fandom is is like that, where we 
we don't really think about that much about what players do off the court or off the field, which is why when players sometimes get political, there are then conversations about that, that LeBron should shut up and dribble or whatever, because it's easier to just admire what's happening in the in the arena and kind of then not think about any these players as real people who have real flaws and real, you know, personal successes or whatever that don't have anything to do with basketball. I think the the comparison to Bill Cosby and and Harvey Weinstein is an interesting one because I think it, it's as if, as if there needs to be a like so much bad to push someone over the edge where we have to think about what they did. We have to think about the bad thing. If it's one bad thing long enough ago, we can pretend it didn't happen. Well, I mean, there's probably also an aspect of that where, okay, well, if one woman comes forward and says something, we choose not to believe her. Uh, And it takes 20, it takes 30, you know, however many have accused um, Cosby Weinstein before Finally, we start maybe thinking, oh, these women aren't lying. And I think that's like true in every allegation that every woman brings against a man, I think. I think also that it happened when it did and was brought to light then. I mean, lots of <laughs> lots of current, you know, current situations happened a long time ago, but we're just still now hearing about that because of the Me Too movement. But this was, you know, went through um the court proceedings back then i found his apology really interesting and i don't think that that is a kind of statement that anyone would make today i don't think his lawyers <laughs> would have let him make that um in this climate where he says i thought it was consensual but now i understand that she did not think it was consensual which is sort of like do we understand what the word consensual means maybe not no um, which like is also traditionally like very much. No. Yes. And that is it's sort of a microcosm of of all the conversations we have around sexual assault that like if your partner doesn't think it's consensual, it is by definition not consensual. And that like that that wasn't more clear for more people than is still sort of is sort of stunning to me. I, I think another thing about this is the level of access journalism in sports um you know that's a that's a concept that we talk about a lot in politics that people are very close to their sources and um too close to their sources and want that access more than they want necessarily um truth to come out or that the control of the story is important there and i think sports has an interesting access journalism problem too I was, again, like kind of stunned by the personal essays after Kobe's death, how close so many of these writers were to him. Um, and in a way that I think would make it almost impossible to talk about his complicated past. If you are friends with someone and you're writing about their legacy you're probably not going to write about the rape that he was accused of. And I think that's something that journalists really need to to think about. If we're that close to sources that we're not painting a full picture of them and and instead talking about you know the personal experiences we had with them, that that's that seems to be problematic from a a, a journalistic ethics standpoint. And and do you think that that's especially problematic or like a potential pitfall in the NBA where it does seem like access 
to breaking stories, especially about where a player might go in free agency or, you know, uh, being able to break those first stories about who signed where. Those are fundamentally access stories and they are I think uniquely in the in the NBA, the biggest possible stories that kind of overshadow the entire league uh, in in the way that the NBA is kind of um, set up right now. So there's like an extra incentive not to piss off a player who's done something by you know hammering home what they've done because you don't want to lose access to the ability to break where they might sign in free agency yeah this I mean, isn't a problem with kobe i mean the, the, yeah. you know kobe obviously like jeff mentioned stayed his whole career with the lakers and it wasn't really as much about that but i do think you know the, the conflict of interest there may have been you know in some cases like he had a relationship with espn in terms of analyzing players you know uh for the for the detail series so uh espn and some of the big players in um sports media were not without business ties to him that would probably also you know give them an incentive not to talk about the sexual assault case well and sports is entertainment in in so many ways and not hard news right but then when news is a part of it how do you maintain that separation so that you can talk about the news of a player um when it might be uncomfortable to do so if that player is also your friend yeah and it's interesting that you know to your point about people not wanting to talk about it in the wake of kobe dying is i think valid you know to the extent that we, that's the way we treat anyone who just died. The bigger question is why we didn't talk about it when he was still alive and this idea that, well, now's not the time after he died. Well, was it the time when he was still alive? It, was it the day that he retired? It probably wasn't the time. Was it when he won the Oscar? People sort of thought that that was a little bit more the time. You know, now he, he's he's gone and we're told that it's not the time. So will it be the time five years from now? 10 years from now? Like, when will it be the time to to talk about this? Right. And for victims of sexual violence, it's always the time because they're, they're yeah. constantly being reminded of what happened to them when things happen to other people. And those stories keep coming up. It might never be the time, to be honest, in term, for certain people. I mentioned Michael Jackson before. This is actually similar, I think, in, in the case of Michael Jackson, whereas, you know, when he died, there weren't a lot of people talking about all these accusations in his past. I mean, of course, he was acquitted in one case, but he did settle another case, you know, 10 years prior, 1993, or at least one. Um, and then you look at the documentary that came out um, on HBO, was it last year or the year before? And it was pretty damning. But I, I, I me personally witnessed a lot of people who didn't want to watch that. They didn't want to they didn't want to complicate their relationship with this, you know, fallen icon. They they wanted to believe what they wanted to believe, and I think people will put the blinders on with certain people because of their relationship with the public and in the way fans think of them. And that, in in many ways, you know, we don't want to. I think we're naturally drawn. To, we don't want to complicate our own feelings on a on a matter, especially a tragedy. And once someone has died, I think that that you know, does sort of remove some of the impetus to examine things because uh, a lot of people will just say, well, you know, what difference does it make? You know, he's, he's not here anymore uh, to, to punish for, you know, what he's done anyway. Uh, and I think with like somebody like Michael Jackson, at least you still have the question of, well, can I still enjoy 
his work. You know, can I separate the artist from the art uh, and and listen to the music without that being a tacit you know acceptance of the things that he's been accused of? With Kobe, you know, it's different for sports because it's not like he was and and uh, even in retirement providing you know more moments. He was providing other things in terms of his his kind of um media career afterward and and movie making and so on and so forth but his sort of public life as a um entertainer most of that was pretty much over when he stepped away from basketball so it doesn't even really confront us with this idea of like how do you interpret you know the the art cuz the art is it was ephemeral. It was in the moment of those NBA finals, but it, it doesn't live on in the same way that like a song does on Spotify. Well, that I think is a, is a very interesting point. And for me, I realized after Kobe's death that I, I had stopped rooting for him after, after those accusations, I never was a fan again of his. And I was a little more surprised that, that more people, that that wasn't true of more people. And I wasn't a big NBA fan anyway um, at that time. I had I had liked Kobe a lot um, right when he came into the league. He was my age. And I thought that was cool that while I was a freshman in college, he was playing in the NBA. Or actually he was, you know, he wasn't starting yet, which I also thought was neat that he was coming off the bench and, and was going to be this, like, this star, which was already apparent then. And so after that all happened, I was I was kind of done. I didn't want to root for him anymore. And and I don't I'm not sure that that's the right answer either, that we just give up on people once they I, I, I don't well, know. That's canceling, right? I mean, that's what that I guess. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and to me, a a, a rape, um, something that I I mean, I I saw that as a clear cut rape. And I know I know not everyone did. And it was not he was not convicted. And I get that. But I saw that as a rape and I wasn't interested in rooting for him anymore. And and is that fair of me? Is that fair of me to not allow someone to redeem himself over the rest of his life? I think that's completely fair of you. But I think what what I meant with the, it not going to the actual courts and there never being a jail time situation, um, it gave people an out. It gave people – a an opportunity to put the blinders on and never actually really sit down and read what happened and the details of that. And, and that's the trend I noticed the most in, in the wake of this is that most people don't really know the, the, the story there. They, they haven't really bothered to learn either because, you know, they don't want to or they just – it hasn't come up and they haven't sought it out. And, 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 and you know, I, I bring up the criminal thing but even with a criminal thing, you look at what Mike Tyson – what has happened to Mike Tyson since he got out of jail for rape, you know, with the hangover and this sort of second career he had post-boxing where he becomes this kind of laughable, beloved figure. And frankly, if he were to pass away, I mean, God forbid, um, would that be mentioned in the first paragraph of his obit? I mean, would it, it would probably be this phenom boxer who is wildly popular and changed the sport and all this. And then the, I think the actual jail time would be three graphs down because I think, you know, people want to make these heroes and they want to worship heroes in that, you know, they're willing to, you know, ignore certain things in the process. And I think you doing that is, is noble and, and frankly, you know, you can't criticize yourself for having that stance. Does the Mike Tyson, does that change because he did serve time? Because he 
he we he went through the process that we have, as a society have determined is the way that people pay back their their sins. Like he 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 was convicted, he served jail time, he came out. Does that does that change the narrative about someone? If Kobe had served some time in jail, would we have felt differently? Would he have come back from that? I mean, that's the other thing. The fact that he didn't serve time meant that he could just kind of go on and keep playing and he could do his Mamba thing and and change the image around him and it sort of could just go away. With Tyson, now it's like, well, he 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 did his time and he's back, so it's okay. And I don't know if that's right either. I don't know what I want from someone who has done something that I consider terrible. What do I want from them to redeem themselves? I do think doing jail time is viewed as more of a, you know, punishment was served. He did his time. I can forgive and forget. Whereas if it's financial and it's a it's a, a civil thing and it's, it's done with money and it's not an admission of guilt, it is different. And I think that gives us more. And that's where it becomes more similar to the Michael Jackson case. That being said, if Kobe had actually been criminally prosecuted, I stand by my initial point that it's 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 a different reaction, you know, a couple Sundays ago when that happens than than what we saw. And and what do you make of the argument that some people were kind of those even among those who were acknowledging the um assault allegation that you know, he had tried to change, he had tried to evolve, you know, he um there was a time in which he also used a homophobic slur against a referee. He went on to win an award from uh, GLAD for being an advocate for the LGBTQ community. Uh, he spoke about how he had learned and changed his behavior. And he also became this prominent advocate for women's basketball, for the WNBA. You know, some of it was through his daughter. Uh, but, uh, you know, there would be people that would make the case that, you know, he was trying to make amends, even if it were on his own terms. And to your point about like, this is a case where maybe the, the justice system failed. Uh, and so we sort of have to grapple with almost like, how are we going to make up our own rules of what is paying one's debt to society? And, you know, how, how much of a punishment is enough to kind of cover for something that someone's done. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think it does change, but I think it changes the whole narrative of his career. Uh, and I wonder how it changed the narrative of his accuser's life. And that's the thing that um, that just sort of kills me about all, every conversation we have around this. That we part of what we're talking about when we talk about rape culture is that the prerogative and promise of men matter more than what happens to women. Um, and and it's, it's all the more obvious when it's a famous man accused by an, you know, a regular woman, a person, a woman who's not in the public eye um, that we don't, we don't think about her. We don't know that much about her, though her name was leaked at the time by Kobe's def- defense team and she was dragged through the mud she was and to an incredible degree and she was accused of of changing her story in line even though kobe bryant changed his story first said he didn't have any contact with her and then once when he was presented with the evidence of his dna then it was um then he changed his story um but we don't we don't talk about that we don't think about that and we don't know her and so we it's hard 
it's harder, I think, for some people to sympathize with her. Part of the reason we still don't know her is that there was a non-disclosure agreement that was part of that civil settlement and that Kobe Bryant was still enforcing at least a couple of years ago when the Washington Post wanted to talk to her and she could not talk then. So the the redemption arc fails a little bit for me there because if he – I think he, he could have let that go and allowed her to to talk and tell her story. But that would have hurt his image and I think that that, that was probably a big part of that. The support – a lot of female athletes were obviously also very – broken up by his death. And he was a big supporter of the women's national soccer team, along with NBA. Last um, last year during the college basketball tournament, he was the voice of the women's tournament. And there are a lot of people who said say that, you know, that was part of his legacy about women and, and female athletes. When that happened last year with the college tournament, I really hated it because I didn't like this it felt like he was using these college women to boost his his appeal to women or his cred with women um, in a way that felt very disingenuous to me. And again, felt like he wasn't um, he hadn't he hadn't really dealt in the public or given a public enough apology for what he had done, but was trying to get around that with these other actions that supported female athletes. And I mean, there's there's obvious good to supporting female athletes and more, certainly more NBA players should should be supportive of the WNBA and of up and coming women um, playing sports of all kinds. And, and that was a very good r- role modeling. And I hope other men do that. But it's still it's just this weird tension. And I don't really know how to how to get over any of that. Yeah. And I think you know the re- one of the reasons why this is all so you know complicated to use a term that people were kind of um using as a as a euphemism uh in in the obituaries and stuff uh, a couple weeks ago um is because it wasn't dealt with in a way that especially looking back now we see as acceptable and because it wasn't dealt with at the time then it was it kind of was allowed to fester and be unresolved and in a lot of ways death is the the ultimate lack of resolution you know if you still have things that you want to say to someone or issues with someone that you need to work out and maybe in this case I and mean, we could debate whether kobe owed the public at large you know uh final resolution on this but uh, we think that he did at least to a greater extent than than he did publicly. Uh, and I think it, it's just a, a case of when someone dies, there's that finality to it that's going to leave everything that, that wasn't resolved unresolved forever. That's a really good point. All of this is really uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable that all of these sides of Kobe exist. It's uncomfortable that he can be simultaneously the inspiration for a generation of players and a loving father, and also a man accused of sexual assault. But we should have the courage to grapple with someone's legacy and the life as they lived it, and that means all parts of it. (laughs) 
After that heavy discussion, we wanted to end the show with something a little more fun. So let's turn to the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week and talk about some very bad hockey teams. Neil, take it away. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to talk about this year's Detroit Red Wings specifically. Now, they just won two of their last three games, including a win Sunday against maybe the best team in hockey in the Boston Bruins. But that was especially shocking because up until now, they have been one of the worst teams in hockey history. Oh, I thought you were just going to talk about Jeff's New Jersey Devils. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff, I'm going to spare you dumping on the Devils, they're just normal bad this year, not historically bad. They're like four games below 500, and they're the worst team in the conference. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's because of the weird loser point. We 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 celebrate, um, you know, teams for for losing games in, in hockey. I'm rolling uh, my eyes, listeners. Well, I'm rolling my eyes too. I hate that uh, rule, the Batman point. Screw that. Anyway, the 2020 Red Wings over the whole season have made a comprehensive commitment to non-excellence. They've scored the fewest goals in the league by far. They've also allowed the most goals in the league. They were the first team to let in more than 200 this season, and it might be a little while before anyone else joins them in that club. Now, I have this metric called goals above replacement. It lets you basically itemize who's helping or hurting your team and like how. So like offense, defense, goaltending. The Red Wings are last in this stat, obviously, overall. Uh, they're the only team whose entire roster adds up to be below replacement level this year. Uh, and only 13 other teams since 1943, which is the start of the original six era in hockey, can say that. And only two of them have been since 1976. So the 1994 Ottawa Senators uh, put a pin in that team. We'll talk about them in a second. And, of course, my very own late lamented Atlanta Thrashers in their um, expansion year of 2000 RIP Thrashers. So if we dig deeper into goals of our replacement, Detroit ranks 31st out of 31 teams on offense. They rank 31st on defense. They rank 31st in goaltending. They rank 31st in production from their forwards, 31st uh, in terms of both offense and defense from their forwards. They're also 31st in production from their defensemen, both on offense and defense and also overall. So basically in every possible split that we can kind of slice the performance of the players on this team, the Red Wings are the worst team in the league. And as it turns out, that itself is actually pretty rare. So if we include 2020, there have been 1,391 team seasons in the NHL since 1943. And Detroit is poised to become only the fourth team to finish dead last in every possible category that I just rattled off. Uh, and one of those teams, the 1966 Bruins, probably shouldn't really count because they finished last in every category, but it was only out of six teams that it was the original six. Uh, the Red Wings are finishing last, again, out of a field of 31. That's a lot harder. And then the other two teams on the list were the 1973 New York Islanders, who won just 12 times as an expansion team, and our friends, the 1994 Ottawa Senators. The Senators weren't an expansion team in 94. They had been the year before in 1993 when they won only 10 games all year, which is still the third fewest any team's ever had in a full season. And I want to do a little side tangent on the 93 Senators because they were one of hockey's great punchlines. So at the expansion draft, before they even had a team, they tried and failed on three picks. They tried to pick three guys who were ineligible. Two of the guys uh, they tried to take from teams that they had already taken too many players from. (laughs) That was a no-no. And then the third guy they tried to take and they actually had an outdated sheet of who was eligible for the expansion draft. And so they had to be like, "Uh, sorry, that guy is not on the final official sheet, uh, and they had to make a repick. Inauspicious start. We'll take, um, we'll take Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> Wayne Gretzky, does that sound good? 
he was on the list, right? No? Yeah, so inauspicious start for the Senators. And then that year, they also brought tanking to hockey before it was cool, you know, before all the uh, other uh, stat nerds did it across all these different sports. And they even admitted that they did it. So their owner had a few too many beers with a reporter and implied that he personally guaranteed four players roster spots for the next season if those players helped secure a loss to the Bruins in the final game of the year, which would ensure that they got the number one overall pick in the draft. Even more hilariously, they used that pick on a French-Canadian prospect named Alexander Daig, who was widely regarded as one of the biggest busts in the history of hockey's draft. So that's who they were tanking for. That was the 93 Senators in their first year. Somehow the 94 Senators were even worse. They had a more negative goal differential and even fewer goals above replacement than the first year of the franchise. And that makes them one of the few teams in history who could credibly claim to be worse than Detroit has been this year. So are the Red Wings actually the worst hockey team ever? Eh, Probably not. I mean, they've already won double-digit games this year. Hockey Reference actually thinks that they'll crack 20 by year's end in their projections. Uh, So there are like a few other historical teams who have been outscored by more goals per game than Detroit has so far this season, too. But I think it's important to remember the Red Wings have done it in an era of parity in the NHL where the collective bargaining agreement compels every team to spend within a certain amount of the salary cap, the hard cap that you can't exceed. So it's really difficult to build a team this bad nowadays, and that's why we haven't seen a team get outscored this much since the 94 Senators. And it's especially hard to build a team that's the worst in the game at literally every aspect of hockey. Uh, and it's especially jarring to see it happen to the Red Wings of all teams. I mean, this franchise had made the playoffs for 25 consecutive seasons between 1990 and 2016. That's tied for the third longest streak in the history of the game. Now they're really just a shadow of that once proud team, and they're just hoping to get through this horrible season and make it to better days on the other side. And I think veteran uh, forward Luke Glendening summed it up best uh, last week when he told reporters, every time we think we've hit rock bottom, we go a little further, but we have to stick with it. I like that attitude, and um, I hope that they, uh, they're they better in the future than they are now, because right now, they stink. That's a, kind of a, of a bummer, though. Like, we thought we were the worst we could be. Boy, were we wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Never underestimate, or overestimate, I guess, your yeah. ability to play bad hockey. You can keep sinking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I'm looking at this 94 Senators team. <laughs> Woo-wee! I mean, look, they have a couple players. They got Pavel, the late Pavel Dimitra. Alexi Yashin was on that team. And then, wow, no one I've ever heard of. They have a guy from Jamaica. Probably one of the few in, in NHL history, right? So, you know, they, they, they did some good things amidst all the bad, but there was a lot of bad for them that year. If you guys haven't heard of players on that team, I have... Just no chance. So exciting. Oh, we've 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 got Turgeon. Oh, Pierre Turgeon? No, Sylvain Turgeon. <laughs> Come out and see all the stars like Mark Lemieux. Melvin Broder. <laughs> classics. Classics. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we can leave that there. That will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. A reminder that we're looking for a new producer. So if you're interested in working on the show, love data, sports, and have audio production experience, please send a cover letter and resume to chadwick.matlin at 538.com. 
If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.